go to page 42 of your notes. And, and I want to make sure we look at these. We've looked at uh, what the middle voice is. Now I want to go on and get clarity about what the passive voice and the active voice is. Then I want to do a few more things. So if you'd like to come with me, I just want you to notice in James 5, verse 15, where James says there, he says, it's the prayer of faith which heals the sick. Amen. It's not prayer, because it can just be a prayer of sympathy. Yeah. But it's the prayer of faith that heals the sick. And, and we've got to make sure that it's faith. So I want to, if I just get this across, we would have accomplished something. I'd like you to turn with me now to Mark chapter 11. And I want to look at this uh, next stage. And as you're turning there, I've got a, a line here which I want to draw your attention to. In the middle of page 42, it says this. I better read it exactly as I've written it. One of the great fruits of intimacy with God is the impartation of the very faith of God. And that's one of the things that will happen as you get intimate with God. He will impart to you his faith. And there isn't any other way that it happens. And you'll find that's absolutely biblical. And let me just, hear me as I say this. Um, God's, of course, the one who created time. And God is able to live in the time that he's created, obviously. But the nature of God is eternal. Okay? So God's, if I can put it this way, God's natural habitat is to live in eternity. And in eternity, everything is and is. When, I think it was Moses said, what's your name? He said, my name is I am. I haven't got a, I haven't got a future, I haven't got a past. You see, many, many Christians think of eternity as a long time. It isn't a long time. It's an eternal now. Many of our hymns and songs speak about, you know, a long time. And we get these idiotic doctrines of purgatory, of people staying in other places for a long time before they're finally allowed into heaven. Now, if you understand eternity, that's totally impossible. There's a teaching going around the churches right now that God wouldn't be so cruel as to commit everybody to an eternal hell. He hasn't, he hasn't got any choice. Once you leave this time world, it's eternity. And we are eternal beings, spiritual beings if you like, having a temporary physical time experience. But, but the reality of who we are is eternal. And we're, we're eternally spiritual, but we're going to be temporarily physical. And for a few moments, we're in this strange four-dimensional world of of time, length, breadth, and distance. Now, as God lives and is eternal, and as everything is a now, God clearly can have no problem about the certainties of his wor word, because it's already done in eternity, even, even if it has not yet happened in time. So God never wakes up on a Monday morning and says, goodness me, <sighs> filling the whole earth with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, that's a tough one. I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> God never has a doubt. How can you have a doubt when everything already is? Hello. So what I want you to see is that God is the only real source of faith that there is. It's impossible for God in his eternal nature to doubt and it's impossible for us in our human nature to believe. We've got a problem now. Human nature will never be able to believe, and divine nature cannot find any faculty by which you can doubt. There's no such thing. And so the only way that faith can come to us is by divine impartation. Okay? And so it's got to come from God. And God lives, his eternal life is by its very nature a life of faith. God lives by faith, he is 
in his eternal life, faith-filled, and as a result, he finds himself totally incompatible with people who cannot believe. That's why it says, without faith it is impossible to please God. And those that come to God, see here's the eternal nature, those that come to God must believe that he is. And if you believe that God is, then all that God is and all that he has said is an unchanging eternal now and it's already a done deal. Now does that make sense to you? That's why you have to believe that he is. Because when you've comprehended his eternalness, then that's the next step then to believing that all that he says is going to come to pass. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. So what we've got to comprehend then is that you don't come to faith by working it up. You come to faith by divine impartation. God transmits to us by his eternal life his ability to believe, because God's eternal life is the perfect faith-filled life. If you've got the life, you've got the faith. If you haven't got the life, you haven't got the faith. It's really that simple. And that's why in the first letter of John, the passion of John is to convince Christians that they already have eternal life. It's not something you're going to get when you die, it's something which you either have now or you never will have it. And if you've got the eternal life of God, then the ability to believe is an integral part of that eternal life. So what you concentrate on is the life and faith comes with the package. That's why, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, as Paul is coming to the end of his ministry, he's handing the baton over to young Timothy. His exhortation is, Timothy, just like me, you fight the good fight of faith. And then the next exhortation is, is take hold of. It's, it's, a, it's a very strong word. It's grasp strongly the eternal life to which you were called. <laughs> Because grasping that eternal life is the means of obtaining the faith by which you can fight. So if we concentrate on intimacy and becoming increasingly filled with the life, faith will not be a problem to us. And that's one of the great reasons, one of the many, many reasons why we need to soak in the presence of God. Because it's, it's, it's divine presence and divine impartation that transforms us from natural human doubters into supernatural eternal believers by the power of that eternal life. Now, in Mark 11, Jesus has just cursed the fig tree. Now, that's a very powerful prophetic sign which I haven't time to explain to you, but once again, if you want to get comprehend what's going on here and why that fig tree was cursed and what happened when it was, then you need to get the two tapes called Mustard Seed Faith which explain what it is, because it's that kind of faith that produced that result. It was a prophetic sign where Jesus really brought to an end the flourishing life of dead fruitless religion. He cursed it. And what he did physically to that fig tree, which is represented the religious life of, of God's people, the Jews, which was always producing the leaves of outward performance, but never producing the fruit of real godliness and holiness and all the various fruits. So, so he said, I just don't want an, uh, uh, I don't just want a, a leaf-filled fig tree, I want a fruit-bearing fig tree. And so he cursed it. And, and the, the reason why the kingdom could not be established was because the ground was already occupied by all those knotted uh, rootings of that enormous fig tree. Now you heard what Bernard said last night in that prophetic word. Did you not hear that? You're not here. When he spoke, he said he saw a great tree, a very powerful tree, which was, was, which was being eaten away at the roots and it was going to come down. Now, Alice Patterson immediately came after that meeting. She said, do you know what that tree was? And I said, no. She said, it's Freemasonry. And when she said that, I knew that's what it was. 
You see, and, and we could take various things that are, like you go into Pennsylvania, and there you find the Amish people are filled with every kind of demonic superstition and religious practice. They're very religious, but it's absolutely dead. But because the ground is already occupied with the strength of that religion, you go to Hispanic Central and Southern America, the ground's already occupied by a very perver perverted form of Roman Catholicism, shot through with every kind of demonic witchcraft and superstition and all, all, all kinds of terrible idolatry, but the ground is so occupied with those dead religions, there's no ground free to plant the kingdom. Texas is known as the Bible Belt, but a lot of it is just fruitless fig trees. But because the ground's already occupied, there's no ground ready to receive the seed of the kingdom and to produce powerful kingdom trees. So, something has to be done to clear the ground. Jesus preached and taught for three and a half years to Jews whose spiritual ground was already preoccupied with the power of their dead religion. There was no place for the kingdom. And it wasn't the time until at the end of his ministry, Father said, right now the time's come for that fig tree to die. It's never produced any fruit. You read Luke chapter, um, chapter 18 where we have this little story of Jesus and the Father talking about this fruitless fig tree. Father says, cut it down. He says, oh, give me one more chance to, to dung it about and dig it and fertilize it. Maybe he'll still produce some fruit. And so this was said in the end of the third year of his ministry. So for one more year he tried to bring life into that dead religion. His last week was spent every day in the temple. If you like, that's where the tap root of that dead fig tree was. And every day that he taught and preached in the temple, he, he, all he experienced was greater and greater and greater hostility. It was one, if you like, it was one last desperate bid to get God's people to respond to their king and let the kingdom come so that the, the terrible days of of the city being destroyed and over a million of them being crucified by devilish fury against them. It wasn't God's judgment. He couldn't protect them and prevent them from these attacks. But they wouldn't listen to him. So in the end, he curses the victory, which was a, a great prophetic picture of the, what was happening spiritually in that city. Does this make sense to you? But I promise not to waste my time on that. <laughs> well, not waste, that's the wrong word, but not spend my time. Because I want to come to what happened. He just spoke to that fig tree, it died. Peter's pretty impressed. Please notice in all these verses that we're going to look at that you don't lay hands on things, you don't pray about things, you, you speak to them. You never find Jesus praying for anybody to be healed. He only tells them to be healed. He commands demons to leave. Hello? So then Peter's pretty impressed, and so then Jesus uses this opportunity to get Peter to the revelation that he's going to need divine impartation. Unfortunately, our English Bibles mistranslate verse 22 horribly because probably the translators had no understanding of what Jesus was saying. But what it literally says is this, he speaks in the passive voice of the verb, that's the first thing you need to know. The second thing is that the noun God is in what's called the genitive case, which is the case of possession. So what we should literally translate it is this, he's saying, Peter, you need to receive the faith that belongs to God. Now that will be a good literal translation. He's not saying, Peter, work up faith in yourself because that's an impossibility. He's saying, Peter, you'll never be able to do what I just did unless you learn how to receive the faith of God the way that I have been receiving it all the days of my human life. If you receive God's faith, then you can speak to this fig tree then you can speak to this mountain and it will obey you. 
And when you've received this faith, then when you pray, and do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, then you will see it happen. Notice again here, we have the past perfect tense, speaking of a, of a done deal, which will then see in the future physical manifestation. You've got to know that it has been done before you're going to see it actually being done in this physical time-space world. So this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the passive voice. You've got to be able to receive something which is imparted to you in order to be a man or woman of faith. And what's got to be imparted to you is the faith that only God himself has. Peter, if you don't receive God's faith, you're never going to be able to do what I just did. But if you do receive God's faith, you'll be able to do exactly what I just did. Now, that's why I brought this football here. Because I want to try and illustrate the passive voice. Now, don't be misled by the description passive. Because when you think in English of passivity, you, you think of total inactivity. You see, if you think of it in the wrong way, and there's a lot of this going around in Calvinistic circles, and an overemphasis of God's sovereignty, that we sit there in the wrong kind of passivity, waiting for God to do it. Now, the passive voice means that you recognize your, your need to receive from an outside source. That's all it does. But you've nevertheless got to be active in the way that you receive. Now, Randy, I need you right now. Randy is a quarterback. And I, you see, I want you to just stand the other side there, okay. He's going to act as a receiver momentarily. I'm going to pretend to be a quarterback, which I've never been, and I'm not quite sure how you do it. I used to play rugby, but football's intriguing. <laughs> now, you see, if you can imagine, this, this football is the faith that belongs to God. God's faith. I used to throw my Bible around, but I ruined them, so I got myself a football, which <laughs> works just as well. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's, Jesus is saying, Peter, have the faith that belongs to God. Okay, now, notice what he did. He received it, or caught it. Okay? Now, that's an essential part of the reception process. Now, this is what many, many Christians do. Randy, will you now be God and throw God's faith to me right now? Father, send me your faith. Now, you see, let me teach you how to throw a ball. <laughs> Hit me in the chest. Oh. What I'm illustrating is that God can do his part in sending you his faith, but if you don't do your part in receiving it, it literally falls to the ground. So God will train you how to be a good receiver. If you go through the New Testament, you'll find that so many times they received the Holy Spirit. You receive faith. Say, so God, teach me how to be a good receiver. Right here, have the faith of God. Okay, now, in rugby, which we do it better, let me show you. Throw it to me. You, you take it into yourself here. You don't catch it with your fingers, because that's, you can have a fumble there, but if you take it into yourself, then you've got it secure. Now, no, you see, if the quarterback takes the trouble to throw a good pass to the wide receiver, and he takes it, now, he doesn't just stand there like a dummy, because what will happen is, it'll be stripped from him. Amen? So having made a good reception, you've then got to do something with it. You've got to complete the play, and in rugby you actually physically touch it to the ground. You make a touchdown, and then you've scored. But if you stand there like a dummy saying, oh, thank you for this wonderful faith, and don't, and don't do anything with it, the devil will strip it off you before it's put to work. So the moment you receive faith, the next step is then to put it to work in an action of faith. All right? Have you got that? But what so often happens is 
just hit me in the chest. Now you see, this is what happens. That's it, perfect, perfect. See, that's what we do. Oh Lord, give me faith, give me faith, give me faith, give me the Holy Spirit. And he, he sends it to us, and we're just still crying out for it, and, and it falls to the ground. Now, there's a gentleman here with a right leg with some pain, some difficulty in his right leg. Could you quickly stand, please? Come on, that's right, you're the guy. Is it, is it the right knee? What's the matter with your leg? All right, that's fine. This is the guy. What is it? All right, are you prepared to be healed? All right, will you receive the faith of God? All right, is it hurting you now? A little bit. Here, have the faith of God right now and be healed. Take it right into yourself. All right, put that knee to the test. Test it. What's happened to it? <laughs> well, that was. Sorry? Is it, is it better? No. Is the pain gone? No. Well, you're the guy. Who else was standing here? Have you got pain? Can you, can you receive faith? Go on, have it. Be healed. Has it gone? Has it gone? Has it gone? Praise the Lord. What's the trouble with you, brother? Okay? Pain in your back. In your leg. You're going to be healed? Receive the faith of God. Go on, take it right into yourself. Is it healed? Come on, don't fool the people. Is it here? It is. Was it painful before? Okay. There was someone else who was standing here. Who was that? All right, Paul. What's the matter with you? You're going to be healed? Have the faith of God. Sorry, it was a bit low. Is it gone? You're going to throw to him or me? <laughs> now, if we learn to do that in the spirit, and you know, it's amazing. Um, I mean, the brother said, it's because I ain't got any faith. That's exactly right. But it doesn't have to happen now. It has to happen. I prayed for a woman in, we prayed for a woman in India, and at, the, and at the bus stop, she was blind, her eyes open. It wasn't in the meeting. I prayed for all kinds of people, and you know, when you're praying for cancer, there's not usually an immediate, obvious response. So your eyes are not on. See, if you judge it by what you see, then you're going to be start struggling. But if you if you know you've got it. And you may be having trouble with unbelief. I, I saw you and knew about you because God spoke to me about you. Amen. So whether it happens tomorrow, later on today or not, I'm going to get you healed in spite of your unbelief. <laughs> You're going to be healed. Now, does that, do you understand that? All right. Let's, I want you to move on um, with me. And I can give, give you some quick examples. I told you already that Paul makes it very clear that this faith comes to you from God. He gives you faith. The next thing I want to just draw your attention to is that, let me give you some examples. Abraham, Romans chapter 4, verse 20. 
from 17 through 21, Abraham's going through the process of being brought to faith. He's no different to you and me, but the thing about Abraham is that he's willing to be changed. When God spoke to Abraham what he was going to do, Abraham's response was to laugh in incredulity. But then, it, it, then what it says actually, literally, he says, he did not decide against God. That's all that he did. Then it says in verse 20, it, it, it's not all that well translated, but it says it in verse 20, it, it literally says that Abraham was empowered with faith, would be a good translation. It's in the passive voice, and the, the verb is one of the verbs of the power verbs. Dunamo'o. He was, if you like, he was dynamited with faith, wouldn't be a bad translation. And when God had done that act, then Abraham was brought to a place in verse 21 where he's now thinking like God. Abraham has become fully persuaded that what God had said he was also well able to perform. He's now got the faith of God. So he's now seeing it God's way. And when you've got the faith of God, when God's faith has come into you, then God's word in your mouth is the same as God's word in God's mouth. We read in Hebrews 11.11 that when she was past bearing, Sarah received power to conceive. Again, it's the passive voice. It's that same word, dunamo'o. She was dynamited with ability to conceive when she was past bearing. And as a result, she became the mother of Isaac and, of course, of that multitude that Abraham was going to receive one day. Now, our churches are filled with people that are convinced they're past-bearing. Because spiritually, men and women have a womb and their purpose is to give birth to children in the spirit. And if you were to take an average census of the average church in America, you would probably find that, because I've done this, somewhere between 70 and 80% have never personally led anybody to salvation in Jesus' name. We have a very, very high percentage of barren wombs in our churches. And it's so endemic that it's considered to be the norm. Now that level of spiritual bar barrenness is, is so tragic because it's preventing multitudes coming to birth in the Spirit. Because so many people, they're the only contact of the people around them and the only possibility for people to hear the Gospel. And I want to say this, that anyone can receive power to conceive when they're dynamited with God's faith. I'm exhibit A, and when God got hold of me and changed me, I tell you, I, there's nothing I love more than bringing people to Jesus Christ. I was quite, I mean, I was naturally a very shy person, but God's changed me because shy people are not created by God it's a psychological attitude. It may be a spiritual, demonic bondage, but it's not, God didn't create anybody to be shy. Now that doesn't mean that we're all extroverts, but it does mean that we're not afraid or open to be communicating freely to other human beings. And God's delivered me from that. I was the shyest, most reticent, retiring person that there ever been in the world. But you put me near anybody, and I'll get them saved. If, if there's any possibility, I'll get them. It's a wonderful virus, which is absolutely incurable once you've got it. And I want you, as part of this school of the word, to say, I will not tolerate spiritual barrenness in myself or in the people of the church that I represent. We're looking for a miracle from God to dynamite us. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, talking about the new amazing life that he's lived, living totally free from all the bondage of his demonically possessed past. I mean, Paul was so possessed by demons that he will be like Osama bin Laden today. He was in breathing fire and slaughtering to, to destroy the church, and he's getting transformed into this amazing apostle of the gospel. He's so changed, and he says, I no longer live. 
I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I do live, but it's not me, it's Christ living in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of, here's the genitive case again, I live by the faith of the Son of God. In other words, I'm living by the faith that God's giving me. It's God's faith. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he, all that Paul did was to become a good receiver. So there's power for miracles, there's power to give birth to new believers, and there's power to live a Christ-filled, transformed life, and it's all a matter of the activity of faith. If we know how to receive God's faith, then all these things are possible. When I was a young man, a teenager, and in, in my 20s, I was nearly, I was 28 when I got saved. But all those teenage years, all those years of the 20s, I, I was a, not a Christian. I didn't pretend to be a Christian. It wasn't anything like as bad then as it is now, but it was bad enough. And I watched movies and read books that totally polluted me, and I was, I was filled with lust, like pretty well every young man that I knew anyway. And I got saved certain physical habits that I don't even want to talk about, they stopped immediately, but the battle of the mind continued. And I went to India as a missionary, but I was so troubled with unclean thoughts that I would look, and I hated it, but I couldn't do anything about it. I, I look at the ceiling, I look at the walls, but I couldn't look at beautiful women because of what went on in my mind. And I couldn't stop it. And then I got filled with the Holy Spirit, as the pastor of the Bombay Baptist Church, that's when I got, well, not, I was the associate pastor in those days, but I became the pastor. And one of the things God showed me very early on in my new spiritual life was that according to the Bible, I was to have the mind of Christ. That's what it says. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Put on the new man, having been renewed in the spirit of your mind. And this new man is created in righteousness and holiness. And not many other scriptures like that. So I thought, well, look, Jesus wasn't struggling with dirty thoughts. And so I decided that I was going to have this new mind. I shared it with a Canadian brother, and we got, on, we got down and prayed. And I just said, Lord, I don't know why I'm in such bondage to these things. I repent of my past. Will you send your mighty blood? Will you just cleanse every gray cell of my mind so I can no longer think these foul thoughts? And if there's any demonic power, will you break its hold over me? Now, we didn't know anything about deliverance or demons, but I'm, I'm very sure demons left me that morning. But I didn't roll all over the floor and vomit. Um, it would have been worth it if I had. But all I know is this, that, that that morning, listen to me, that morning, because I got hold of this by faith, that ceased to trouble me. That was somewhere about April 1965. And I have lived since then in such incredible victory by the power of that transforming faith. It's not even a problem with me these days. It's never troubled me. It does not trouble me. I, I find myself walking in a purity and a holiness which gets stronger and stronger, and it's not my discipline at all. It's the power of God coming into me through faith. I began to wonder, you know, because I'm now getting on a bit, and I thought, well, maybe, and I used to, and I testify to young people, and I pray for hundreds of them, I pray for lots of pastors. I spend so much time with pastors who get hooked on the internet uh, pornography, and they're now being destroyed in their own homes by this foul stuff coming down this pipeline. It's endemic in the United States. There's lots of women, as, as much prisoners as men, in the foulness of our society. And we've got to have a power of a gospel that can cause us to live victoriously. And I testify that it's, this is my life. But I did think about, it was just about a year ago, I think, maybe a little more, no, about a year ago, I thought, well, maybe, you know, I'm coming on now, I'm 71, maybe my testosterone levels are going down, so maybe it's not fair to talk to, you know, energetic, red blood-filled young men and tell them that they can live like me. <sighs> Maybe it's just old age now. 
I don't, anyway, as if the Lord said, oh yeah, I'll just show you. <laughs> and and, I, and I, I had the most horrible six hours of my Christian life when God took away the grace. And I saw for six hours that Alan Vincent was as horrible and as perverted today by the popular grace of God as he was the day he got saved. And then he said, right, I'll just give back the grace again. He said, just to let you know that you're no different. It's not to test around. <laughs> it's the power of God. Amen? Now there's a power to live this way. And we've got to bring the people into it. Amen? Now, I have no idea how much time I've got left, but uh, let me just move on. I want to just say a few things quickly. Coming back to the miraculous. See, I want you to see that faith is much wider than the miraculous. But in every department of our lives, I've got faith for finances. It's like a, a tree inside me, which it, it just is there. I, I can't explain it, but I've just got it. I want us to quickly run through a few things. I, it, it, they're not in your notes. You're going to have to, have to write furiously, but I felt I needed to add these things this morning. Um, you've got a blank page at the end, so you've got room to write it. Isaiah 8:18, which is picked up in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 2, verse 13. It tells us this. It's speaking, the Spirit of Christ is speaking, and he says this, in the midst of an environment of witchcraft, of new age, dark, demonic, wizards, and all that stuff going on, in the middle of all that, he says this, I and the children that the Lord has given me, we are for signs and wonders in the earth. Now, God's counterattack for the rise of the occult in the United States of America is a mighty, powerful visitation of supernatural signs, wonders, and miracles. And if we outpower the devil in this way, then our young people are not going to be fooling around with the devil. They're going to be running to a power-filled church. Amen? So... I want you to comprehend that if you are a child of God, it's normal for you and I to move in the miraculous. I and the children that the Lord has given me, they are for signs and wonders. So just get hold of the normality. If you can't move in signs and wonders and miracles, then beloved, you're not normal. Come on, let's get, let's get real about this. It's for the sake of the world around us. We've got to get into our inheritance. It's no good getting there in heaven. It's too late. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Turn there for me, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we read there, you know these verses, verse 7, it says this. There's all kinds of ways of doing it. There's all kinds of manifestations and all kinds of styles have got different ways. I don't care how you do it, just do it. But we're told this in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're told this, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to Benny Hinn and Reinhard Bonnke, but not to anybody else. Is that what it says? Who's it given to? Everyone. All right, what does manifestation mean? It means a visible, tangible, perceivable thing which is visible to the natural eyes. In, in John chapter 21, it says three times, Jesus manifested himself to his disciples after he was risen from the dead. And they could see him, they could touch him, they could hear him. If anybody who wasn't one of his disciples was walking along the beach at that time, they would have seen him too. They saw him with their natural eyes, they heard him with their natural ears, they touched him with their natural fingers. He wasn't a ghost, he wasn't a spiritual vision, he wasn't experience in another realm. It was down-to-earth reality. Now we're told that God wants to show the Holy Spirit to everybody for the common good 
through people like you and me so they can see a manifestation of the Spirit. Amen? So let's say, well, to be, to be able to manifest the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit is, is mandatory and normal for Christians, for spiritual Christians. Then it goes on from verses 8 through 10 to describe these nine manifestations. Please notice that all of them are intended for the purpose of letting the world know that the Holy Spirit has come. Now this is totally consistent with John chapter 16 when Jesus says in verse 7 that he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. Where? To you. To you. He's not going to come to San Antonio. He's not going to come to Lufkin. He's going to come to you. And then if you happen to be in Lufkin, Lufkin will see it because he's come to you. And when he's come, he's going to convince the world Who's he going to convince? The world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And the judgment is not the judgment at the end of the age because verse 11 tells us what the judgment is. He's going to convince the world that the prince of this world has already been judged. In other words, you're going to show your neighbours that when demons possess a kid and hook it on drugs, you can cast that demon out and bring that kid back to normality. And they're going to be convinced about that. That's why the spirits come. To convince the world. And all those wonderful gifts of the spirit are weapons for evangelism, not toys to play with in our charismatic meetings even the word of knowledge. It's a very powerful tool. And often, you know, sin can stop people being healed. I'll tell this story very, very quickly. I don't know what time I'm supposed to finish. Give me a time check, someone. I don't know how long I've got at all. At least 20 minutes. Okay, I'll get it done. All right. I was in, anyway, I won't say where, it was a certain city in the United States and this they were seeing a move of God it was a powerful meeting and there were lots of people bringing their unsafe friends to this meeting rather like last night well that's not a place to bring unbelievers you bring them I tell you they're going to get zapped and at a certain point we gave an invitation for people to be healed a lot of people came forward rather like we're going to do tonight but thank God there were lots of unsafe people in that meeting because their friends had brought them and there was this young woman who was, she told me later she was 18 years of age, but she had already had a horrendous life. She came forward to be healed. And I said this, I said, if you've got sin in your life, you need to deal with that before God can heal you. When I said that, she collapsed on the ground in a real Jonathan Edwards conviction of sin. It was absolutely marvelous. She wailed and wailed and wailed with that deep conviction of sin and nothing could console her because she had a divine revelation of what her sin was in the sight of a holy God. And nothing you could do could comfort her, nothing you could do could console her. She'd crossed the line, she'd gone too far, there was no hope for her. And her physical healing paled into insignificance compared with the burden of her sin. It was so disturbing to the rest of the meeting that in the end we decided to take her off into a, a, a side room and then we began to minister to her. And as we began to minister to her, God ran a movie film in front of me of the last five years of her life. I saw the whole thing. And I told her what the deep, deep root of her, her agony before God was this, that she'd been living a promiscuous life, she'd become pregnant, and then at the last moment, she had gone for a very, very, very late abortion under the pressure primarily of her mother and she had actually seen her own son taken from her womb and murdered in front of her. A perfectly viable little baby boy was killed in front of her eyes and she was, if you like, a co-murderess with the other people. And she hadn't really wanted to do it, but she'd been pushed into it. And the conviction of that was just killing her. Now, we 
learned that she had now been terribly attacked by a sexually transmitted disease. She had, she had sexually transmitted herpes all over her body. She couldn't even sit down. She was in such agony. Finally, we ministered to her, because I told her the whole thing, I said, because she couldn't tell me what was wrong. She said, I can't tell you, it's too awful. I said, well, let me tell you. I said, God showed me everything about it. So I told her what God had shown me, and of course, it all fitted perfectly. And I said, now, God showed me that, not to condemn you, but to tell you that he knows all about it, but he's still prepared for, to forgive you. And if you give your life completely to him, you can start again. Will you receive that? And finally, the good news broke into her heart. And she became so ecstatic with joy, I can't describe to you. And we forgot all about praying for the healing. <laughs> and she went home. That was the Friday night. She came back, because um, we, did, we didn't have public meetings Saturday. She came back Sunday morning glowing with radiant joy and she told me every trace of that condition has disappeared from her body. Now I would rather use the word of knowledge in those sort of situations than impress my Christian friends that I know their telephone numbers and the things that they did last week. Amen? I got on a plane once Go, flying from Sacramento to Dallas, and I was upgraded to first class. It was late at night on a Sunday night. There was hardly anybody on the plane. And this, uh, this flight attendant was handing out the, the dinner to these, to these few passengers. And as she was doing that, God spoke to me and said, now this young woman, she's in a distraught emotional state. She has had a painful divorce about three years ago. It almost killed her then. Then she started to live with a man, and just a few days ago, he walked out on her. She's desperate. She's contemplating suicide. Tell her that I'm the answer to her need. So when she came and placed the dinner on my table, I said, oh, God's just been talking to me about you. So he told me everything about you. I said, when you finish serving the dinner, you've got a bit of time, because the seat next to me was empty. I said, I'll tell you all that he told me. She was intrigued by this. And she completed the service, and then she came and said, what did you say? I said, God told me everything about you. She said, what did he say? So I told her everything, and everything that I said was right, opposite, right on the button, right on the target. And I, and I said, now, don't, don't go and commit suicide. Give your life to Jesus, and he will totally transform you. And she wept her way into salvation. And he's now established in the church in Sacramento. He's doing great with God. I'd rather use the word of knowledge like that any time. You see, Jesus used the word of knowledge evangelistically. And if you and I will make ourselves open to God, to be trained by God, he's going to give us this, these tremendous opportunities. It's for the common good. It's for the people out there. Now, you'll notice that there are nine manifestations of the Spirit, and even speaking in tongues, I believe, the purpose of speaking in tongues, according to the Bible, is that we should build a home. The word is edify, but it's really hoikodomeo, which is to build a house. You build a spiritual residence for God to live inside you, and the more you pray in tongues, the bigger the residence gets. So, Speaking in tongues increases your capacity for God to live in you, and therefore it increases the capacity of God to work through you. So someone who's constantly praying in tongues has a, has a capacity as big as a house for God to live in, and then God can work through them to do wonderful things. So the purpose is that you have what it takes to work on behalf of God to get men and women saved. Even tongues, has, if you see it correctly, has got a glorious evangelistic purpose. I pray in tongues like crazy. 
And I've never yet understood a word that I've said. But it does what the Bible says. It, it, it increases my capacity for God. And as I fill a bigger and bigger place in my spirit for God to come and live in, of course, he brings his faith with him because God, if I could almost say God is faith, that's not really a distortion. God's love, God's life, God's faith. So there's the resources there for God to meet the needs of people all around me. Move on with me to Galatians chapter 3. Ten minutes to go. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What's the answer? Is you've got to hear in a way that brings you to faith. Verse 5. Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What's the answer? So you come to miracles by the hearing of faith. Amen? All right, I'm going to move like a lightning to come to the end in the right place. So can you see this is a faith issue? And if I was to ask in this room and say, how many of you speak in tongues? There probably would be quite a large proportion of you that would raise your hands. If I was to say, how many of you just move around and God uses you to work miracles, I think you would agree the number will be significantly less. In the average American church, it certainly is. And the reason is not because God is niggardly about the gift, it requires a certain faith to be able to move in this way. So if you will allow God to be an imparter of faith, you're going to come to great faith. All right? Now let's move to Peter. Come to Acts chapter 3. You see, did Peter receive what Jesus said? Evidently he did. Come to Acts chapter 3. There's the lame man at the gate called Beautiful. Peter says, I don't have gold and silver, but what I do have, I give it to you. In the name of Jesus, Rise up and walk. The guy gets up, starts leaping and praising God. Verse 12, Peter says at the end of the verse, don't think that by any power or godliness that we have that made this man walk. It wasn't anything that we had. And in verse 16, he tells us what it was. He said, it's the faith that came to us through Jesus by which this man stands before you whole. In other words, Peter's recognizing there was an impartation of faith from God that came into him and flowed out through him to touch the need of this man. Now, if you go to 2 Peter, I hope you're still with me. Am I going too fast? Go to 2 Peter. And Peter's writing this letter to a certain category of people. He's writing this letter, listen to what he says, I'm writing this letter, verse 1 of chapter 1 of Second Peter, I'm writing this letter to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, those who have received faith the way that we receive faith. That's the categories people he's walking, working to. And he says to say that his divine power has already granted to us everything necessary for life and godliness in the full knowledge of him who has called us, this is the literal translation, who has called us to his own glory and excellence. The translators dare not translate it the way it says it in the Bible. I don't know why. We're being called to his glory and excellence and if we let that faith be imparted to us, we can actually get there. But see the key there, it comes through the full knowledge of him who has called us. In other words, it's by intimacy that this becomes a reality. It takes us back to spending time in his presence. But, beloved, soak in his presence. Spend in his presence. Say, Lord, I want to be so filled with your faith that I can go out and be a manifestation of your glory. It's not for me, it's for them out there. Jesus said, if you come to me and drink, and again, the, the punctuation of verse 38 is totally wrong, if you come to me and drink, 
continuously. And if you believe in me to be as big as the Bible says I am, then as a result of drinking and as a result of believing God to be, as Jesus to be as big as the Bible says he is, the combined effect of drinking and believing, as a result of that, out of your innermost being, rivers of living water will flow. So you've got to be a drinker in order to be able to, to, to imbibe the intimacy of his presence, but then you've got to be a believer actively working to let that river flow out to meet the needs of the people all around you. Don't just come to the river, be a river. But do come, otherwise you've got nothing to give. But don't have it for yourself, have it for them out there, beloved. Does that make sense to you? All right, let me just finish them. Three things that you've got to do to move in the power of God. Number one, you've got to believe in what you have. Acts chapter 9, Peter comes, let's look at Peter all the way through because he's a good example of a transformed person. He comes to the house of a man called Aeneas in Acts chapter 9, verse 30 something, I can't remember which verse it is, but you can find it there. And he says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. He's very aware that he is an instrument for God to use. In 2 Kings chapter 4, the prophet Elisha says to the widow woman, woman, what have you got in your house? And she says, oh, just this little pot of oil. He says, well, woman, you take what you've got, you start to pour it out into every vessel you can find, and there's going to be a continuous supply. That's a picture of the Holy Spirit, of course. So who lives in you? What have you got? Oh, I've just got Jesus risen from the dead with all power and all authority. I've got the Holy Spirit. I've got the Father living in me. Well, I can't do much with them, can you? Just about anything. See, if you know what you have, and that you are just a piece of humanity, that the triune God is gloriously, graciously willing to live in and work through. Beloved, you've got something to give. Step number two. Acts chapter three, we read it just now. Peter came to the lame man and said this, I don't have gold and silver, but what I do have, I give it to you. There's a a way which is very hard to, to describe how you come to a point where by an act of faith, you give them what you've got, confident that it will do something. You don't pray for people, you give them something. I mean, I, I, I thought afterwards I was a little bit strong with that precious lady yesterday, but she was praying about the problem. I said, no, speak to it, do something to it. So, see, Jesus never prayed about things, he spoke to them. It might be an act of some kind of prophetic act, it could be speaking a word, but there's got to be something which you, which you do into that situation. And when you do, you release what you have. I, I find it very hard to explain, but I know, I know what I've got and I know what, who dwells in me. I know the charging of God in my, my spirit and I, can, and I turn a sort of switch which says, here, have what I've got. <laughs> Now here's the third thing, we're going to close with this. When a baby gets to about, say, 10, 11, 12 months of age, uh, it suddenly gets this crazy idea that it's not content any longer to stay on its hands and knees. It's looking at its big brother walking around and its father and he says, "Mm, I think I will do that. And so one day you walk into the room and there's little Johnny who up till then was content to walk around on his hands and knees. He's suddenly standing by 
the chair or standing by the table, holding onto it, and he's going, ja, 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 ja. Now, when a father, a loving father, or even a loving elder brother sees that situation, what do they do? Have you ever seen a, a loving father or a loving elder brother do this? Saying, Johnny, what do you think you're doing standing up? Get back on your hands and knees where you belong. <laughs> and what do they do? Oh, come on, walk, walk, walk to daddy, walk to big brother. Oh, look, yes, come on. And they try to do that was to get him to take his first step. Now, again and again, he takes his first step, then he falls down. And he bangs his head, and he bangs his ear, and over the next three months, he's going through a painful process of learning to walk. He's bruised and he's battered by these failures of his ability to walk like his dad or to walk like his elder brother. But there's something inside him that will not be put off. He knows, down in his instinct somewhere, that he was born to walk like his dad, he was born to walk like his brother, and he's going to find a way to do it, even if it kills him. I've never seen a little baby progress from crawling to walking without having a few tumbles and a few painful experiences. But it's the, it's the instinct of knowing who he is and what he's called to be that keeps him going. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6 says this. It says, to those that say they abide in him. How many say you abide in Christ? Please raise your hands. All right, this is what it says. To those that say that they abide in him, they ought also to walk even as he walked. Your big brother is saying, come on, come on, come on, take a few steps. Let's see if we can get you into this supernatural miracle thing. Those that say they abide in him ought also to walk even as he walked. I and the children whom the Lord has given me, they are for signs and wonders in the earth. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, it says this. It says, as you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk ye in him. How did you receive Jesus? How do you walk? If you fall down, what do you do? If you fall down three times, what do you do? If you fall down ten times, what do you do? What's going to happen? You're going to learn to walk like him, and the power of God's going to flow through you, and miracles are going to start to happen to glorify the name of Jesus. There's no way that I or anybody else can just go, boom, and like Cinderella, you're suddenly full of the power of God. You're going to have to get up and walk, even if you fall down several times as you learn the process. If you start to step out and you fulfill the elementary conditions we've already looked at, in David's tabernacle, in San Antonio, and Lufkin, and Lubbock, Plainview, Abilene, Colorado, Sealy, wherever you come from, Corpus Christi, and then of course all over the United States, Nigeria, Kenya, they're pretty good at it already, but we can, India, we know a few things that we have yet to learn in America. But if we're going to respond to this, we're going to turn these tabernacles of Davis into places where the lame and the sick are going to come, and they're going to get healed to God's glory. It's not enough to pray, although that's an essential prerequisite. Prayer produces the climate. The ability to receive God's faith gives the empowering, but the final act is to step out and give them what you've got, and then things will surely happen in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's just stand. Let's stand. Amen. I just want to pray this in before we, before we break up. Tonight we're coming together in the Tabernacle of David. This is going to be the particular emphasis. 
there's going to be a time of impartation. There's going to be a time when we, we will pray for the sick. There are certain very gifted ministries that God's used powerfully in healing ministry. They're going to be here. But my passion is that what we have received by obeying these principles, our passion is that we should impart it to you and set you on that road in Jesus' mighty name. Now, have you heard the word of God? Yes. And what are you going to say? Yes. Lord, I'm getting up. I'm going to walk like my big brother. Let the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, let it flow through me to the healing and to the deliverance of multitudes who presently live in some degree of darkness and bondage. Now, Lord, we're ready to receive. We're ready to be trained. And, Lord, we're going to step out and if we fall down and look stupid, we're just going to get up and do it again and do it again until the flow of supernatural miracles begins to flow through us according to your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. God bless you. Amen. amen.